Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is traditionally read during Lent, usually on Ash Wednesday. It's from the Gospel of Matthew 6, 1 through 6, 16 through 18. Listen now to God's word. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not lift your left hand, know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray to the, in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Carol, for an excellent job reading the scripture for us this morning. Uh, I want to give you just a little context for why I'm preaching this message uh, today. Today is the fourth Sunday in Lent. Um, as uh, Carol mentioned, this passage is typically read at the Ash Wednesday service at the beginning of Lent, which we did here in our sanctuary. But uh, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this whole issue of public versus private persona. And much of it was stirred up in me through the, the tragic death of one of our colleagues here in Kentucky just uh, three weeks ago. It was on a Sunday afternoon. Um, a pastor that, uh, that actually was in seminary at Asbury, uh, a little bit of overlap between the two of us. was acquainted with him, was not a friend with him as such, but knew of him, and um, he committed suicide uh, on a Sunday afternoon after leading worship, just returning from a mission trip with his church, uh, hung himself in the fellowship hall of the church about mid-afternoon. And it is really... Uh, been a hard blow to a lot of the clergy in our annual conference who knew him, loved him, been in ministry with him in a number of settings, just trying to make sense of it and understand what was going on in the uh, inner world, uh, the secret part of this man's life that was not betrayed by his public persona as a pastor who seemed to be doing well, seemed to be in good spirits and being effective in his local church. So I've been doing a lot of thinking and praying on this, and this week, especially in, in one of my devotional times, um, I just felt the Holy Spirit's leading uh, to come back to this passage and talk about it for all of us today. So let's uh, bow our heads for a moment of prayer. 
God, we invite your Holy Spirit now to come and to move in power. We welcome his ministry of instruction, of teaching. But we also uh, invite you, Holy Spirit, to convict us, uh, to show us our sin, to help us see perhaps who we really are, to take a hard look at ourselves during these remaining days of Lent, and uh, to allow you to do a work in us that um, will move us forward out of the shadows so that there might be unity in who we are, not duality, not a false self and a true self. God, we know it's your desire for us to be authentic and real from the inside out. And we see that here in this passage out of the Gospel of Matthew. So come, Holy Spirit, come and do a, a, a new thing in each of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So is it, is it difficult for you to keep a secret? Hmm? Some of you, I've got one that I'm just dying to tell, but I can't do it yet. Yeah. And now you're wondering, what is the secret, right? Some research that was just recently published in the last two or three years has explained in part why it is so hard for human beings to keep secrets. Uh, Art uh, Markman, who is a psychologist, says, our minds have a limited capacity to process information. Anybody have that problem? Yeah. Yeah, I do increasingly. So if you're engaged in a complex discussion, he writes, it may be difficult to keep track of what you're allowed to say and what you aren't allowed to say, which can lead you to divulge information you shouldn't say. Anybody have that problem before? Sure we have. In other words, uh, secret keeping requires a lot of mental gymnastics, a lot of emotion, a lot of concentration. And the people, interestingly, who multitask the most, who, who, who pride themselves on being able to juggle several things at one time, they are the worst at keeping secrets because they fail to understand the limited capacity their brains have for keeping track of too many, th too many things at one time. Now, that is one explanation for why we struggle to keep secrets. There are many others. The question I now have for you, is it wrong to keep secrets? I heard a no back here behind me, coming out of the choir. Uh, it's really interesting that there are several times in the Gospels where Jesus clearly tells people to keep a secret. For example, he heals a deaf man, a leper, a blind man, and raised a girl from the dead. And in each case, he told the recipients of those miracles, don't you tell anyone what has just happened to you. It's true. He told others who came to believe in him as the Messiah. He said, don't tell anyone that I am the Messiah. And then right after this amazing revelation of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're coming down the hillside and Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, he said, don't you tell anyone what you've just witnessed. Now timing obviously plays into this. Um, Jesus own personal timetable on when and how he will reveal that he is the Messiah of Israel. But it is fa fascinating to me 
that it seems that, in, that, that despite being told not to tell these things, many of the persons who he asked not to speak ended up telling those things anyway. So then I got to wondering this week, well, I wonder if Jesus really wanted these things kept secret, knowing what he knew, surely, about all of us, about human nature, uh, and that it's hard for us to obey and to do as he says, um, then, then maybe he wanted them to say it after all. It's kind of like telling a child something you don't want them to share, but you really do. Um, this all sounds really complicated, doesn't it? And what we're talking about this morning is not the secret information that, that we withhold, but the secret motivation of the hearts that, um, that each of us have. Now, I read a story this week about a rich Jew who never gave alms to the poor or contributed to charity. Almsgiving is, is one of the most important tenets of Judaism in the Old Testament, and it was in the first century in the time of Jesus. And there were people in this small town who, who never called him by his actual age, uh, they, by his actual name. They, they just simply called him the miser because he was such a tightwad. How would you like to have that nickname? Miser. And one day a beggar came to the door of the miser seeking help. And the miser asked him, he said, where, where did you come from? Where do you live? And he says, well, I live here in your town, just as you do. He said, that's nonsense. Everyone who lives in this town knows that I do not give to beggars, ever. Go away. Now in that same town, there lived a poor shoemaker who was a very generous man. He responded to every needy person that came to his door, all appeals of local charities, he responded to them. Uh, no one was ever turned away from his house when they came seeking help. And then the miser dies. The stingy old miser dies. And guess what? No one mourns his passing. No one comes to his funeral. And he was buried in the very back of the cemetery next to the fence. As days passed, the rabbi began hearing disturbing news regarding the shoemaker. People were starting to gossip. And the shoemaker um, started to get a reputation similar to the miser. People complained that he no longer gave alms to beggars, no longer was funding charity. He refuses everyone who comes and asks him for help, they told the rabbi. So the rabbi said, well, have you talked to these people? Have they, have they asked the shoemaker, what's up with this? You know, what's going on? He said, yes. He tells us he doesn't have any money any longer to do any good deeds. So the rabbi decides, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And so he goes to the shoemaker's shop and he says, why have you stopped giving money to the needy? And slowly, the shoemaker began to speak. He said, many years ago, the man called the miser came to me with a huge sum of money. And he asked me personally to distribute this money to the needy. But he made me promise that I would not reveal his generosity to others. And once every month, 
He'd show up at my house in the dark of night and secretly would give me more money to give away. He said, people think I'm a generous man. He said, but it was not my money. Never was it my money. It was all his money. He said, how can a simple shoemaker give to charity and to the poor with the wages I get? So the rabbi calls a meeting of all the townspeople and he tells them this story of the miser. He said, friends, we've been wrong. The miser was a righteous man who lived according to God's law. We must honor his memory. So they, they walked out to the cemetery, they crowded around his grave, and they prayed a prayer in gratitude for his secret generosity. Now, according to another rabbi named Jesus, it is what we do in secret that sometimes, sometimes matters most to God. It is not what people think of you. It's not your reputation. It's not the image that, that people have of you, who they think you are. It is the motivation of your heart that God is looking at. During Lent, we're called to self-examination, to greater self-awareness. Uh, to invite the Holy Spirit to help us see ourselves as we really are. And you know what? That is a really difficult task for most of us. I've, I had a spiritual director tell me 20 years ago that nine-tenths of the battle of life change and transformation was self-awareness, seeing yourself as you really are. He said most of us are clueless about who we really are and do our best to cover up. Uh, the real us. We have a facade, we have a mask, we have a persona that is public that often differs with what we are in private, what we are in the depth of our being. I was meeting with someone recently who was undergoing a major life change, a, a, a huge crisis in his life. And, and I really admonished him to invite the Holy Spirit to show him who he really is. How did you get to this place? What happened? What did you allow to occur in your life? Because you had all these blind spots. You failed to understand the kind of man you really are, not the one you thought you were. Uh, during this season of Lent, we are challenged to figure out why we do what we do as disciples of Jesus. People who are seeking to honor God with our lives and and to really understand what kind of person I really am. And it's, again, not easy. And it requires some time in secrecy. Now, Jesus here in Matthew 6 uses this word secret six times. Verse 4, he says, Give in secret and your heavenly Father, your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. And then in verse 6, he says, Pray in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then in verse 18, he says, fast in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What are you like in those secret places? A famed college basketball coach, John Wooden said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely 
what others think about you. John Wooden believed that the test of a person's character is what he or she does in secret when no one is looking. Now, the focus on the Sermon on the Mount, this is well known, you may have seen this, studied this, the, the, the thread that runs through the Sermon on the Mount is that of righteousness. What does it mean to live a just and righteous life that honors God? And it starts with the Beatitudes, and then there's, there's numerous segments uh, of, of teaching on various topics that, that ultimately point to this inner person, who we are uh, on the inside. I learned just this past week in some of my studies, I may have known this before and have just forgot that I knew it, and that's happening more and more as I get older. But to me, it was a new revelation. Uh, Gail Byers, uh, who is a Messianic Jew, told me at the end of the service, she says, you have taught me something new this morning. I didn't know this. And she grew up in a Jewish home and can read and speak Hebrew. She knows the scriptures. But, but I read that almsgiving, which is giving to the poor, giving to the needy, became synonymous in the first century with utmost righteousness. In fact, the Hebrew words are related to one another. A person without compassion for the poor, a person who does not help the poor, is not righteous before God because almsgiving and righteousness are almost one in the same. Isn't that fascinating? That a righteous person is a generous person that takes note of the neediest among us and does something about it. Jesus warns in verse 1, here in chapter 6 of Matthew, He says, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. The word piety in the New Revised Standard Version is sometimes translated good works, and in other translations it's just righteousness. So it's beware of practicing your righteousness, of showing off your righteousness before others so as to be seen by them. For then, he says, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. In fact, he goes on to say, as he looks at almsgiving and prayer and fasting, that the person who makes a show of their righteousness is a person whose only reward is the attention and perhaps the elevation of their reputation that comes through those acts. Their, their reward in heaven is null and void. Now, is Jesus condemning public displays of good works? No, Jesus is not suggesting that outward good works, outward righteous behavior is unimportant. He assumes, quite frankly, that faithful people who love God are are giving, are praying, and are fasting. Are you doing those three things? I mean, this is an assumption. He says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. So, so he is assuming that we are already doing these things, but he says, but he says, what's your motivation? Now, here's something also interesting. Here we are in Matthew 6. In Matthew 5, just a few verses earlier, Jesus says this. He says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand. 
and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So which is it? Which is it? Is it keep your good works a secret? Or is it let it all hang out so everybody can see it? There, yet again, is some tension in the Scripture, and even in the, ten the tension found in the teaching of Jesus that seems to be contradictory. It can be confusing. But here's the thing. We are to be secret Christians, and we're to be show-off Christians. As long as we keep our egos in check. As long as our life is being fueled and being motivated by an intimacy with God that comes out of a secret place, out of a secret motiva motivation to give and to pray and to fast by virtue of our relationship with Him, not trying to seek others' approval or even somehow to earn God's approval. And this is so hard for us as human beings. Um, Jesus assumes that you're going to try to glorify God with good and generous lives, but he warns against what? Hypocrisy. Against inconsistency. Doing things for attention. Doing things perhaps uh, to make others happy when in reality you are not motivated by these more noble virtues of love and sacrifice and self-denial. Quite frankly, our, our culture is obsessed with the external, with celebrities, especially with beautiful, talented, um, you know, rich celebrities. Social media feeds into our worst tendencies at, as human beings to uh, show off, uh, to be pretensive in our behavior. Uh, Alice McKenzie has rightly observed that our political system thrives on hypocrisy. In a devotional that she wrote for, uh, for Ash Wednesday, she says this, Politicians expend a lot of energy trying to appear to be someone or something they may or may not be. She says that's why being a politician is so exhausting. Today I have to put on jeans and a bomber jacket and be an everyday Joe. Tomorrow I've got to parade my family up to the podium and be the epitome of a faithful spouse. And Father, look, I'm praying, look, I'm fasting, look, I'm religious, look, I, I give to the poor. Now vote for me, I'm a good person. The word hypocrite in the Greek is a term used for actors. Did you know this? It, it's a word for actor. It, it literally is describing the mask that an actor puts on stage to conceal his identity so that he might take on a false identity of a character in a play. And Jesus, when he uses this word, is warning us against hypocrisy that goes beyond the notion that you're doing the right thing or not doing enough of the right thing. He is looking at the motivation of your heart and your life. Now, he's probably using some humor here when he talks about this, because there is no known historical reference to anybody having a trumpet played when they're bringing their gifts into the synagogue, okay? Um, I mean, we could hire Tammy to do that, couldn't we, Tammy? We could pay you a few bucks every week 
You could be ready up here at the altar. And for those that were, you know, serious about their gifts to the church and wanted to give the full tithe and more, uh, wanted to give a, a sacrificial gift to the community care fund to help the poor, then you could be stationed at the ready. They could drop off, you know, five bucks to you. So you could blow the trumpet and we would all know that at this moment somebody is doing something spectacular with their almsgiving. I mean, it's just, it's absurd. It's a ridiculous kind of image, as is this, you know, your right hand not knowing what your right, your left hand, I mean, my hands know what the other ones are doing. My brain's not divided in half, uh, literally. I mean, they work together. But, but he also talks about, you know, okay, why, clean your face, get the dirt off your face. Stop moping around like you're, you know, depriving yourself of things you need through fasting. He said, slick your hair back with some oil, put your cologne on, go out in public and look your best so that no one would ever know that you are making um, a, a significant sacrifice by going without something like necessary food and water. So Jesus is, is using some images here that may have made people smile uh, or even laugh. No one literally hires a trumpeteer to announce their gifts to the church, but we certainly come close. <laughs> we come close. I've known persons who have given large gifts to churches and to charities that insist on having their name engraved on a plaque or put on the outside of a building or a hospital. I've known persons, persons who've wanted to remain anonymous in their giving when they make a very large gift to the church, but they get upset when they feel like the pastor's not paying close enough attention to them afterwards, that it doesn't change their status with the pastor who is aware of their gift. Frankly, really big anonymous gifts make me nervous because I think... Is there a hidden agenda here or is the person genuinely giving in secret? Sometimes they aren't. Patronage, returning favor, loyalty, and attention in exchange for gifts has always been around. It, it was one of the foundation stones of, of Roman society and culture. It was very common in Jesus' time. And he says it is soul-corrupting hypocrisy and there is no reward in heaven for those that get caught up in these external acts of righteousness but whose hearts are far from God. This is not a commandment against public prayer, which we find over and over again in the Scripture. Some people misread this. I've had people tell me, oh, don't, don't call on me to pray, only pray in secret. Uh, this is not a commandment against public giving or even corporate fasting, for which we find examples in the Bible. Uh, these are commandments against superficial, self-righteous actions that mask an empty soul. And that is a message that preachers and parishioners alike need to wrestle with. The Sermon on the Mount is addressing an inner discipline of the heart if godliness is genuine, it will be found within. And it's one of the reasons, I think, why we're commanded in the Bible, in James, for example, to confess our sins to one another, to take off the, the mask, to be real, to be authentic, uh, to, to, to be down to earth with each other, so that you may be healed in that authenticity, that, that honesty, 
that, that kind of gutsy reality. I mean, I, I know as a pastor about a lot of hurt and pain and struggle that people have. And, and what, what hurts us as a church at times is that we are unwilling to share those things with trusted others so that in our humanity, uh, we might become more like Jesus, become more real, uh, so that the inside of our life is more in sync with the outside of our life. You, do you get what I'm saying here? So is your heart authentic? Are you the real deal? Or are you a make-believer, a pretender? Thomas Cranmer, a leader in the English Protestant Reformation and the Archbishop of Canterbury, seemed to understand the danger of wearing the mask of hypocrisy. When he was helping to edit the Book of Common Prayer over 500 years ago, he included this colic of purity in the Book of Common Prayer that is found in your bulletin. So I want you to take your bulletin out as we conclude the message this morning. Look there at the top of the page. And I want us to read this aloud very prayerfully. Just, just bow your head. Of course, your eyes will be open, but bow your head. And just quiet yourself in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And see if you can make these words your prayer. Words that have origin in the 8th century. Amazing, 1,200 years old. Would you pray aloud with me? Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Just one more word. Nearly 20 years ago, I had the privilege of going to England and participate in a Wesley Heritage Tour with my dad. And we visited some of the historic landmarks of early Methodism. We visited the home where John Wesley died, took his last breath at age 88, saw his bed. And off his bed, there's a small room, maybe six foot by seven foot, has a little stone, I mean, a little iron, a coal burning uh, stove in it. And then next to that, there is a desk and uh, a kneeler that, uh, that was John Wesley's. And Wesley was known for going to bed no later than 10, usually by 9 p.m. He got up at 4 o'clock every morning uh, in the latter uh, decades of his life and spent that time praying and reading God's Word by candlelight. Um, there are many who say that though Wesley was a brilliant theologian, a gifted preacher and organizer, this is the powerhouse of early Methodism. This is what, what our faith as Methodists was forged in. It was forged in this little room, this, this closet, if you will, of prayer, where John Wesley met with Jesus every single day of his life when he was home. And no doubt had other places he prayed when he was traveling. And, and in some form, in some shape, every single one of us need to have one of those places. It may be outdoors, walk in the neighborhood, 
before the crack of dawn. It, it may be on a hike uh, in the woods, maybe out in a, in a boat on a lake, casting a rod and a reel. Uh, it could be, um, you know, in, in the recliner, in the den where I sit early in the morning and have my prayer time. There's so many different ways that we can, can come and pray in secret, seek God in secret. Uh, but I promise you, I promise you that, that if you will make that a priority of your life, then what you long to be true of your outside will begin to become real on your inside and the two will become one. And, you know, the biggest complaint people have, have about the church today always has been true. What do they say about us? Yeah, we're hypocrites, right? And I think sometimes we are. Because we have allowed this dichotomy to exist in our life, in our public versus our private existence. Lord, we do pray in the strong and mighty name of Jesus that you will help us to see ourselves more clearly, that we might love you more dearly and be more like your Son, our Lord Jesus, day by day. And this we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.